It's all about retention and recruitment. It's about building a staff that is experienced, capable, educated, and can provide the best quality care at bedside that the that the every every patient in this community deserves. This week on Old Spiral Podcast, we bring you part two of our St. Joe's Nurses Union series. Last week, we spoke with Greg Intel, a longtime St. Joe's nurse. He talked about the history of the hospital and how it changed from nonprofit to for profit, and how some of this changing of hands has affected him as a nurse. This week, we welcome Joe Thon and Joe Shuey. Also, longtime nurses, these guys are part of the bargaining team. And we talk a little bit more about why they think a nursing union will help the nurses and the patients, along with a little bit more detail on how the negotiations are going. For more information on the St. Joe's Nursing Union, find them on Facebook at Community for Patients Over Profits. Thanks again for these guys for all coming in and talking with us, and we hope you enjoy the episode. back old spiral podcast listeners today we are hitting round two of our nursing union series today we have with us uh the joes joe shuey and joe thon uh both longtime saint joe's nurses and then uh, occasionally greg uh, until is back he'll he'll pitch in every now and again uh, but the Joes are bargaining team members for the nursing union, and uh, well, I'll just let them tell you more about who they are and, and why they do what they do, and uh, we'll go from there. So we'll start with we'll start with Joe Shuey. They're pointing at each other like, you go first. <laughs> well, hello. My name's Joe Shuey. I uh, have been a nurse at the hospital for seven years. Um, I come from a... Um, construction background. Um, in 2008, I had an accident that uh, um, fell off a roof and messed up my leg. And they told me I needed to find a new career. Um, so I went back to school and became a nurse. Um, have a long family history at St. Joe's Regional Medical Center. My mom was a nurse on the um, medical floor and then some time on the uh, mental health unit as well. Um, I believe she worked there for 27, 28 years. Um, I am currently a nurse in the emergency department of the seven years that I have at St. Joe's. I have about, you know, close to five years in the ICU and I guess two and a half years in the emergency department. So I'm working on seven and a half years. So, um, and yeah, I mean, I, uh, the reason why I chose nursing was partly because my mom was involved with the hospital. Um, you know, I, Spent a lot of time in the hospital when my mom worked there. I'd go down and see her on her lunch breaks and stop by and say hi and knew a lot of the nurses that she worked with. And, you know, it used to be a real family-oriented hospital. Um, and uh, so when I had my accident, I was looking for what direction to go to. And, and part of the reason why I settled on nursing, too, was, you know, I was really um, impressed with when I had my accident, I had to have several surgeries, one emergent and then several follow-up surgeries on my right ankle. And I was really impressed with the care that I received and the experience that I had with the, the healthcare field 
and I, really I'm a I'm I'm actually kind of a success success story as uh, in comparison to my accident because for a while there they thought I was going to be a below the knee amputation stemming from my accident and and now I uh, um, doing quite well it took a lot of work and physical therapy and stuff but you know I can stand on my feet and run around the hospital for 12 hours straight and handle it just fine so it's been a good deal that's cool and that yeah. just shows the quality of care at our hospital yeah it was it was great and uh, you might have run around uh, with my grandma she was Pat Grimm oh yeah yeah yeah, I know. Yeah, I know your grandma. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people. I'll run into them, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, your grandma was the best nurse." Yeah, she was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. Uh, Joe Thon, how about you? Well, hello everybody. My name is Joe Thon. Uh, I have been at the hospital since July of two thousand five. Uh, I too came to St. Joseph's, um, probably because of my mother. My mother had worked at the hospital. She put in thirty one years there before she did her retirement. Uh, she was a nurse in the intensive care unit, and I can remember the passion she had uh, for taking care of really sick people and, and how challenging it was, and uh, she really enjoyed it. Ultimately, probably got my inspiration from her. Um, I spent the first about seven years of my career in the critical care area up there, divided between the progressive care unit, which is like a telemetry step down, um, and then also the intensive care unit, and then ultimately made a change to where I currently work, which is a post-anesthesia care unit. Uh, so most people won't remember me, which is probably a good thing, um, but anyway, that's where I currently reside. So oh, just over 15 years at the hospital overall. Um, I've enjoyed uh, pretty much my entire 15 years there and, and uh, hope to spend another 15 or 20 before I get to retire. Well, cool. Welcome to the show, guys. We're happy to have you on. We're happy to be here. Yeah. So ultimately, what we're here to talk about, of course, is your role in the union um, and, uh, and what's happening with St. Joe's. Um, I know you guys mentioned that you're part of the bargaining team. So what does that look like and, and kind of what do you guys do in, in terms of that? Yeah, thanks for the question there. Well, as a bargaining team member, um, ultimately, uh, kind of got to give you a little history uh, about how it came to fruition there a little bit. Um, so once the vote went through and and we uh, officially or legally had a union formed at the hospital, uh, we sent out a survey to the members, and by members I mean the registered nurses in the in the bargaining unit. And uh, ultimately, we gave them freedom of speech, but we also listed what their their priorities were. So in other words, were their concerns about healthcare benefits, staffing ratios, what were the priorities? Uh, once that information was gathered up, it was placed into pie charts. And ultimately, um, since Joe and I had been involved and so many other people as well, uh, talking uh, with many of the, the bargaining unit members throughout this whole union drive, we kind of knew where the priorities lied. And so ultimately what we did is um, we have uh, spent countless hours looking at other contracts, looking at wording, uh, trying to make sure that we're not missing anything in terms of proposals. And we have uh, put together proposals to exchange with the hospital back and forth um, to try to get us a, a contract. Um, so we've been bargaining now what we started. We had one date in July of uh, last year, and then we skipped August and then ultimately really got to the table in September of last year, and we've continued through with the exception of a, about a three-month lag time with the COVID, but um, still at the table. Yeah, we were like 13, 13 months now. 13 months now. Yeah, 13 Long months. 13 months. Long 13 months. <laughs> yeah, and how, how has COVID impacted sort of how you guys are moving forward with all this? 
Well, um, you know, we're you know we're we're trying to. Um, well, initially, it it kind of put everything to a stop, um, and then once things kind of settled down, um, we you know we have to we wear masks at negotiation sessions. We try to keep our distance as best we can, um, and it was you know with. With COVID, it kind of set everything back at the same time, you know, not just us. I mean, it set the sure. whole world back, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, getting, like, some dates scheduled has been a difficulty because, you know, everybody's trying to play catch-up from when everything went to a standstill and you couldn't do anything. So that's kind of affected us a little bit, being able to get some, you know, future negotiation dates nailed down because, you know, the um, Teamsters who represent us, they're trying to play catch-up with stuff that they weren't able to do during COVID, Um you know, the, the hospital's lawyer that does the negotiation on their behalf, his schedule's kind of the same way. You know, everybody got pushed back. So now it's just we we had a pretty good set schedule as far as negotiation dates happened before COVID. And then post-COVID, it's been kind of a little bit willy-nilly and hard to, you know, find dates to really get together. But we're still doing, you know, two to three bargaining sessions a month. So Has, has that sort of lessened a little bit since we've reached stage four in, in Idaho? Um, a, a little bit. Um, you know, the, the whole COVID game changes on a daily basis. So especially right. when it comes to healthcare, I mean, the, you, you, you think you're up to speed one day and you have a couple of days off and you come back to work and it's like, holy cow, what, what just happened? Cause we're doing something completely different than we were two days ago. But so, I mean, it, it's just, it's a, it's a constant transition phase, I guess is what you'd say. But I mean, it's let, let up a little bit, but at the same time, you know, you hear that, you know, there's been a spike in COVID cases in surrounding counties, you know, and you like you go up to Pullman with, you know, WSU being back on campus and the numbers are going through the roof. And so it's, it's kind of back and forth, up and down, I guess you could say. Right. But, well, I really feel for you guys and having to go the extra mile, not only at work with this virus, but then also in what you're trying to achieve with the union. Um, that's got to be a lot on your plate all the time, especially because, you know, all the stuff that you guys are doing, I'm sure is taking up time after work and taking time away from your families. All right. So before we get, uh, really far into the, the union stuff, I, I guess I'd like to hear from each of you on why you thought it was necessary or how the idea came about and, and yeah, why you thought it was necessary to form a union in the first place. Yeah, good point. Well, um, as Greg talked about in the previous podcast, uh, our administration had decided that we wanted to uh, move on to a different company, and so we were sold. And I remember vividly the day sitting inside of a meeting um, before RCCH actually took us over, and they were telling us about our new benefits, and we were getting ready to do open enrollment. And to sit in there and realize that you have no control over the losses that you're going to take uh, anytime a company is going to change hands, or even for that matter, if the current company wants to take something away or change something, you have no control over it. And uh, without getting into too much detail on those losses, um, it was very evident to me that we needed to do something to protect our employees. And uh, so I had uh, pondered over the union thing a few different times with a few different people, not very in depth though. Uh, nobody ever seemed to bite at the the idea until I met Joe Shuey here, and then uh, he bit hook, line, and sinker. So, well, I was thinking it too. So, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Yes, it was a match made in heaven then. <laughs> and of course, you know, a big focus of the union is is increasing patient care, and we'll get into that later. But at the same time, I mean, patient care is going to get better if you have happy employees that enjoy where they work. So, and, and that's one of the things that really brought this up for me in wanting to organize and form a union is because with every change of hands that the hospital took, we would see, you know, procedural changes, um, policy changes that, have, that directly affected patient care. And, you know, prior to organizing and forming a union, we had spoke up and talked to our, you know, our unit directors, we talked to administration, we had meetings about it, unit meetings, we'd talk about it. You know, they would say that they would take our concerns up the chain, but it seemed like nobody ever addressed any of the concerns that we had. So um, based off of a, you know, fairly lengthy, um, I guess you could say, pattern of, of not listening to the staff is when we really, is what really turned me on to, you know, organizing, forming a union, trying to get some working conditions into a contract so that we could try to stop some of those changes or at least prohibit any further changes without some form of negotiation around the matter. So, I mean, that's what really got it for me was um, was the changes in overall policy with, with every step to a bigger corporation. It was, it was, it seemed like it was less about patient care and more about the bottom line. Yeah, and these big corporations, they're not local either. I mean, they're not even close to local. Is that no. right? Well, Brentwood, Tennessee would be where uh, actually both LifePoint and RCCH were based out of. Um, the parent company of LifePoint is a company called Apollo, and Apollo owned RCCH. They had roughly 18 or 19 hospitals. And what happened was Apollo actually acquired uh, LifePoint as another agency. And then rather than Apollo owning two different hospital chains, they merged the two together. So we actually was we were purchased by RCCH and then merged into LifePoint's actually how the transition went, um, but both out of Tennessee ultimately. So what what is the um, detriment to either the hospital or patient care that the hospital – or I guess LifePoint at this point feels for you guys having forming, formed this union. Um, what is, what do they think is unreasonable that about your about your contract or or what you guys are trying to achieve? Well, I think I think one of the things is is that they don't want to, you know, if if we're able to to gain a contract to put a contract in place, then that that limits what they can do. And they really don't want any limits. They want to be able to change policies. They want to institute changes at a whim. They want to be able to make cuts when they think they need to increase the profit. They want to. They want the freedom to be able to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And I think that that's first and foremost. There's the, I guess you could say, cost factor. Um, you know, if we have a negotiated contract where our benefits can't change, um, which our benefits have changed greatly over the last course of the last five to six years um you know it so there's that added cost of having a contract that they have to stick to and honor to in between terms a simple google search will show you uh what lifepoint's pattern is and their pattern is a raise every three to four years is all and just a two to three percent raise it's funny everybody always says in our world they say yeah last time we got a raise well keep in mind consumer price index goes up about 2.8% a year is what it's been, so call it three. 
a raise isn't just getting 3%. A raise would be getting 4%. 3% right. is just inflation. Yeah. That extra percent is an actual raise. Do you remember what that council was called that they started? It was right before we organized. It was in 2017, thereabouts, where they formed the nurse councils, and you went to meet on different topics. Nurse residency? The nurse residency. Um I think I want to piggyback on what Joe Shuey was talking about earlier. Um, I was asked to be in nurse residency, and I thought that this could be a committee where the nurses would have a voice to speak to issues that concern different departments and that also that concern different issues with patient care. And as I attended a couple of these meetings, I was told in these shared governance. That's what it was. Shared uh, so the shared governance, sh- not the nurses. Shared shared governance yeah, that's meetings. Okay. Yes. Cool. And it when it was uh, it was an idea that was brought forth by it, our administration, uh, ran by certain directors in the hospital, and one of the I was to be the head or one of the heads of one of these committees, and when. My group of fellow coworkers decided some topics that we'd like to research and interest. We were told that those topics would be picked for us and that basically the groundwork of all the data for anything that we needed to put forth would already be done and that those presentations that we were to give, we're basically getting pulled away from patient care some of the most talented nurses in the hospital, many of us, to come give many of the other most talented nurses in the hospital presentations that are prepared for us. And I respectfully uh, walked out of that position with the intent of knowing that it wasn't a real voice for patient care and it wasn't something that I felt positively about. And Another uh, piggyback to what Joe was talking about was in order for us to gain a more collective voice and regain that family atmosphere at St. Joe's, I felt that we needed a change in representation. And that brought forth the opportunity when we uh, decided to become a union. And when we voted that union in, the sense of pride and family uh camaraderie amongst the nurses was something that was pretty powerful so i just wanted to kind of put that in there well Well, let's talk about that because you guys have mentioned that family dynamic that there used to be um what what has changed and like what other mark changes have there been in in culture at the hospital since this turnover into life point it really starts with uh what i call transplants so Historically speaking, our hospitals had very good retention of our, um, I call them the O's up there, as in the CEO, COO roles. And I believe since 2012, we've had something like nine or ten CEOs with the interims. And uh, we never even had a COO role until recently. And uh, uh, CFOs were probably on our fourth or fifth one. Um, And ultimately, what that says to me is a couple of different things. Back in what I call the old days, you had local people that you may have run into at the t-ball game or whatever it may be, and you could talk about work, and they may ha- they may disagree with you, but ultimately they would hear you. Now you have people that are 
placed here in a community and they have no ties and they have a job to do and that job is ultimately to run the hospital efficient and not that I'm against it run being ran efficient but uh, we would like to have a little bit of voice and um, just to kind of back up the bus here a little bit about the whole union thing what, what we all need to remember is a union is a democracy it is like a family um, without a union uh, the company gets to say whatever they want and do what they want. With a union, we at least have a seat at the table. We get a vote on things. Um, you know, so, so Joe Shuey and I being on the bargaining team, even if we come to what we believe to be a tentative agreement on the whole, entire contract, it still gets voted upon with the whole membership. They get a vote and say whether they're happy with it or not. And then uh, we might be happy with it, gone through the whole experience, and they may not. And so I think... Um, like I say, just backing up a little bit, the whole democracy about a union is, is what really sells it for myself and a lot of people. So basically before LifePoint, you really wouldn't have even considered doing this union? I personally, I can't say that it was, you know, we obviously formed the, we started to form the union under our CCH and ultimately voted once uh, we became LifePoint, you know, in April of 2019 is when it became official. But I would say that uh, the first time you would have been able to convince me to potentially uh, be pro-union at our hospital would have been about the 2015 mark. Prior to that, I don't believe there was a, a reason for it. Um, I, I just say that uh, to give you a couple examples, in the old days, again, as I call them, Nobody questioned whether we got a raise or what it was. It was standard. Everybody knew what it was going to be, which is why we had some of the we we had the highest paid nurses in the Quad Cities. Uh, healthcare benefits were never changed, um, uh, and I understand that nationally, you know that that's changed all around. There just wasn't the uncertainty. Um, there was never a layoff. They had hiring freezes and they had times when it was tough, but um, we just have a lot of uncertainty right now. And, and, you know, ultimately this just gives us a lot of security. So I, I personally probably would not have been uh, for a union in our workplace prior to 2015. Yeah. Me either before that. Um, I mean, you look at, if you look at models on how to, you know, successful corporations that have happy employees, you know, the things that matter to employees where you have transparency of administration, where your employees are are informed about what's going on and what's coming around the corner. You have um, opportunities for personal and professional growth. You have um, a network of administration that um, supports um education and they want their staff to be trained well and so that they can pass that on to the patients that they take care of. So, you, you know, those are the models that, you know, successful corporations put, you know, they, they want to, their employees to be able to work their way up. And at, at St. Joe's, you used to be able to do that. There used to be the investment in the staff where you had education, where they rewarded you for getting national certifications. And all of that has gone by the wayside um, over the last you know, four years, we have no idea what's going on between from one day to the next. You know, um, directors, they come and go. I mean, I've had in the emergency department in the last, what, three in the last year and a half, and um, just got a new one that started a few weeks ago. Um, and it's, it's just, it's constant chaos. And, and St. Joe's used to be an air, a hospital of stability for their employees. And it used to be a hospital that invested in their employees. And that is no longer the case. It's And, you know, that's 
really what got me on down this path too is well let's also make mention um you know you start looking at things that impact us day to day in the old days as i call it our capital expenditures was five thousand dollars so our director could spend five thousand dollars on a piece of equipment uh just with her own decision she didn't need to have uh the blessing from anybody from administration i think that's down to a thousand dollars now well in the medical world what can you buy for a thousand dollars so what it, nothing it, it puts quite some pens yeah a couple pen, toothpicks yeah, pretty much <laughs> it, it puts quite the stress uh, not only on our directors but also on staff you know when when you're missing out on the day-to-day things um some other things you know in the old days Suppose we felt like we needed a little better staffing because we had higher acuity patients. And for those of you that don't know acuity, it's basically how uh, how sick somebody is or how much care they need. When we had higher acuity patients, there wasn't a question. We just basically said, hey, we need an extra nurse. And the nursing supervisors that do our staffing would allow us to have one. They didn't have to go back um, and, and be hung out to dry. Nowadays, our directors have daily productivity reports that we are either in the red, the yellow, or the green. And it is a battle daily to keep our productivity numbers where administration wants them. And I don't know if that level is driven from Tennessee at corporate office or if it's something that's derived up in our O-suite. But it just has a feeling um, like you it, – it's a priority to somebody in an office somewhere, and it shouldn't be like that. It's, it's very hard on my end. I can't control that. If there's patients there, I have to take care of them, and we want to do the best we can. And you know. Well, does that, that productivity measure, does that ever make you guys or other staff feel like pressured to maybe cut corners? Um, does it translate into worse patient care, do you feel? It doesn't make me feel like I have to cut corners per se, but it does make me feel like it's the priority of the hospital. Um, the other thing that it, I, do, I can't say that it impacts patient care. You know, I think the nurses at St. Joseph's and, and probably nationally are dedicated enough. They're going to do whatever they can to not cut patient care. But for instance, um, I don't really know the number of nurse minutes to to patient ratio. I don't I don't get privy to that information. But in my department, it's not your typical. You know, you come in and you work a twelve hour shift or an eight hour shift. We come in and we work until the patients are done, and then we go home. So it used to be that um, if we had a slow week because it was near a holiday or a physician or two was on vacation, we could still make up hours with, um, you know, doing education on the computer or whatever. We can get away with a little bit of that now, but quite frankly, uh, the we, we need to be leaving when the work is done. And that's fine sometimes, but there are people that can't afford it. They need a paycheck and... Um, you know they they're, they're happy to work in some capacity, um, but well, that's a long day too. And um, I got a new job recently, and I was reading through my union contract, and like in that we're we get mandatory break periods, like we get ten fifteen minutes in the first half of the day and fifteen minutes in the second half of the day. And I mean, if you guys don't have a union, do you guys get those mandatory rest periods, which I think would be pretty darn important. Well, historically speaking, uh, yes, we have always. Uh, the, the hospital stance prior to a union was we did receive two 15-minute breaks a day and then a half an hour lunch. Uh, the lunch was not paid. The breaks are, I will say, in bargaining at the table right now, uh, their corporate attorney has proposed to decrease those breaks to 10 minutes. Um, 
and and then give us the half hour lunch. He has some really unique reasoning behind it, but that's probably cool. another podcast. And I know that Greg, when he was on here last time, he said that, that you know a lot of people, uh, you know, if there were layoffs or you know your staffing's down a lot, so I imagine getting those break periods might be a little bit more challenging. Yeah, if I could touch on uh, some of what we do in the surgery departments, break periods. When I'm talking about like time spent away from the hospital. For instance, as Joe said, we work till the work is done in surgery. And then if I was to get called in the middle of the night because I'm on call for trauma and work all night, I still have to report to my shift the next morning. And there may or may not be enough staff, depending on how busy we are, to send a nurse home that's on very little sleep or no rest at all. And in our negotiations, we're trying to afford mandatory rest periods as uh, something that's guaranteed. And if it's not, there's incentive behind it to get those nurses home and get them rest because they'd be working on at an increased wage at that point in time. So it, it's better for patient care. It's better for the safety of the individual that's there working and their team members if we're allowed a certain time to go home, rest, recoup, and come back with, with energy, and if we have enough staff that's capable to afford uh, those hits where we are up serving the community, taking care of people throughout the night that may get in a motor vehicle accident or what have you. Surgeries need to happen at all hours of the night. Care needs to happen in every department at all hours of the night. And nurses are frontline staff that respond on call, and we also need to have mandatory rest periods. So you're saying you could work a whole day, go home, be on call, get called in in the middle of the night, and then have to report to duty the next morning? Yes, that's currently what happens, and I'm, I'm okay with that. What I would like to see is in a contract that we ratify with our uh, corporation, LifePoint, some set standards where we agree upon mutual rest periods, not, not just the freedom for them to change whenever they want what they feel is important with our staffing levels and with our uh, safety of rest. And I would like to touch on that whole, the, the push for the productivity numbers has, has really changed the face of the emergency department. Um, the emergency department used to be one of those departments that was you kept fully staffed 24 <laughs> hours a day with every day of the year because the emergency department is one of those departments that can go from no patients to busting at the seams with multiple traumas, heart attacks in a matter of minutes. With this push for productivity, we have now instituted a policy that has never been done for it before at St. Joe's, and that's putting emergency department nurses on call. If the numbers aren't there, we send people home. And that sets you up for a huge patient safety risk because if you have five nurses that are supposed to be scheduled during the day, you happen to be slow in the morning and you send a few of them home. Yes, when you're on call, you have, you're supposed to have a half an hour response time for when you get called in. But if you were to get into a car accident and show up in my emergency department and you are a massive trauma, do you want to wait 30 minutes for a couple more nurses to get there? Nope. 
it's 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 really changed the ED. Well, a think lot. about the pediatric patients and how critical they are. I mean, all the patients are super yeah. sick in there, you know, at yeah. that stage. But pediatrics, especially. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 really changed how the emergency department's been ran as far as productivity and crunching the numbers. And boy, you know, we've only had you know. We've only had 25 patients so far this morning at 9 o'clock. We better send somebody home. Well, that has never been the case before. So, so, so basically, are you, like, worried about people saying, this sucks, I'm done, see you later, St. Joe's, I'm be- out of here? Because oh. we're not getting to a contract or because they don't want to be union? Yeah, I mean, I can take a little bit of that, Drew. I mean, that's that's another reason to to get a quality contract where there are some stated securities is because – what you would and the intention there is to get re, and retain quality nurses. So yes, there are people that, without those um, securities in place, they're going to get tired of the implementation of continual change, policy change, and yes, they will go seek opportunities elsewhere. Where I believe I stated in the last podcast, the grass looks a lot greener. The other thing is, you know, we've had some change of uh, staff since we've had the vote, but we won the vote at uh, 78.7% uh, of the registered nurses have voted voted yes for it. And that's actually even kind of a skewed number in favor of the hospital. What I mean by that is they were, it, without going into the legalities of it, they were able to have what they call challenge votes. And they there was, uh, I think, over 40 people that were challenged. And uh, during our union drive, we had tallies on people that were going to vote yes uh, or that pledged to vote yes. Had those challenge vote people, uh, had their vote been counted in the election, we actually would have wanted it just shy of 90%. And so I'd like to think that, for the most part, people are interested in, in obtaining a contract. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our new Patreon account. That's right, OSP fans. You can now directly help us fund this show and get access to exclusive content. For more information and to learn how you can support the show, head to patreon.com slash Podcast. Now, back to the show. So, even if it is 90%, um, was it 90%? Nearly. What would keep the other 10% from wanting to join a union? Well, I think at the root of it, some people are against it. I mean, let's face it, um, the people that are anti-union typically think that it uh, harbors uh, lazy people. Um, I think the people that are against it think that people will become lazy uh, once we form a union. Um, Aside from that, uh, some of them like the opportunity in a union contract as you know uh, typically speaking if you and I do the same job we're going to make the same amount of money Um, and some people believe that if you do a better job than I do you should be paid more and so you do you're always going to have a certain amount of people that that are not going to be for it Um, I've always told people you're either lazy and you're a union employee or you're lazy and you're not a union employee you know well and on the other side of the coin are those who don't feel like they want to be part of that union, are they also happy with the way things are going now? Is that the feeling that you get? I I don't I don't believe that too many people are happy with how things are going right now overall. Uh, I would imagine that if you interviewed our administration they would have a different story, but 
for the most part, any registered nurse, CNA, rad tech, EKG, respiratory therapist, they, they, it's pretty much overwhelming if you can actually talk to them in private about it. How is it different between the nurses trying to seek out better deal with the hospital than what the hospital is well, trying to seek out with regents? Well, that's what's funny is um, they don't want to give us a contract that uh, gives us guarantees or assurances for the future. But if you look at how really business is ran in general, our hospital has contracts with uh, vendors for purchasing stuff. They have contracts with physicians. Uh, Every physician that's employed by the hospital has a contract. Uh, Contracts are just a part of daily life. And then to touch on the Regents thing, it, this is a very interesting concept to me, and uh, so I'll, I'll try to paint a little picture for you. Uh, last year, uh, as LifePoint moved in, they decided that they weren't seeking high enough reimbursement from Regents Blue Shield, and so ultimately they asked for a higher reimbursement rate, and it's been touted that their initial request was nearly 40%, I think I read on the Regents' website uh, by their CEO. Uh, of course, Regents didn't agree to that, and so the two went into gridlock um, over it. And what's interesting to me is during our union drive, uh, before we voted, there was actually a letter that went out to all the employees that talked about strikes, if nurses went on strikes. Well, in essence, St. Joe's or LifePoint went on strike to Regents. We actually went out and said that we would no longer accept anybody with Regents' insurance after, I think it was January 15th, unless it was for emergent services. Now that's to me is a strike. And yet we are being shamed for the potential of having a strike later on. Uh, I don't feel that us trying to obtain a contract is any different than them trying to obtain a contract. In fact, I, I, I kind of find it offensive that they treat us this way. And again, um, do you feel that the gridlock would have happened before LifePoint? No. In fact, I challenge anybody to go out and do a simple Google search on this. Uh, If you just do a search on uh, LifePoint trying to obtain more money through uh, insurance companies, you'll find at least two other facilities. It seems to be their MO. Um, They move into a small town. They try to create a great public image. Uh, At least in these other two towns, they said that they were being underpaid uh, for the reimbursement they were receiving from the insurance providers of of those areas. And it's funny, one of them actually pulled up a newspaper article when I did the Google search. And the the catchphrases and wording that they used in that town was actually identical to what we used here (laughs) in Luston. It's almost as if their (laughs) PR guy just sends it out all over. So um, anyway, I challenge anybody to take a look at that, and I'd be happy to. Well, I mean, that's just alarming, too, to think about not only is it our community, this little area that really relies heavily on that insurance, right? I mean, pretty much everybody in this area has regions. I got regions. Yeah. Um, they're essentially left out in the cold, and not only is it happening here, but it's happening other places as well, it sounds like. Well, now we go to the for-profit model. So if you think about a vacuum just sucking dollars out of St. Joe's and sending it to Tennessee, um, ultimately that that's something that's really disturbing to me is this is my community. It's our community, right? And we have people from a huge corporation in Apollo, which is a bunch of billionaire investors that invest in 
uh, companies uh, to make money, which nothing wrong with that. But they've came into our community and they're sucking the dollars out of here and they're sending it elsewhere. None of it's getting spent here. I shouldn't say none of it, but... Um, you know that that's money that needs to be spent at North Forty. That's money that needs to be spent at, you know, Lolo Sporting Goods. It's money that needs to be spent locally here. On um, fishing trips. Yes, yeah, on at fishing the fly trips. shop. At the fly shop at North Forty. Come check out your boy Drew at the fly shop at North Forty. <laughs> so with uh, we you know we mentioned something about like uh, uh, some turnover that's happening probably because of all the changes that are going on. Is St. Joe's hiring right now? Um, and then, like, I know Lewiston's kind of a lower-wage state, so, like, what's the... Are they incentivizing nurses to come somehow, or or what's going on with all that? Well, currently, they do have a $7,500 uh, sign-on bonus for nurses, at least of the operating oh, room area. I picked the wrong career. Well, <laughs> what's interesting is it doesn't seem that they want to give us a contract or do anything to keep the nurses, so they may have a lot more bonuses coming up. But, again... To me, it's an insult that they will uh, bring travelers in and pay a much higher wage than us. It's an insult that they're willing to uh, bring in a new graduate or somebody uh, from outside the area and offer them 7500 but yet can't seem to do anything for the employees that have been there long-term uh, or short-term for that matter. So pretty insulting. Uh, um, as far that's as- what gets me. Cable One will do that, and they'll be like, hey, new people, you get this $40 a month. I'm like, what are we doing? How long have I been with you, and I don't give $40 a month? What's going on here? Well, it's an insult to our community again, and that I feel like we've got a pipeline of people coming from Walla Walla. We've got a pipeline of people coming from LCSC that would love to work there, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and you're continually inviting people from outside of here to come do rural medicine when you've got plenty of good help that's already connected to the community. That's That's kind of the feeling I get on it. Um, about Idaho being a tough state, I think the wages are a little lower here, and we are on the border in all fairness. Um, but we we often get told, well, we're on a border state, so so that's why our wages are a little lower. Well, if that's the case, the question I'd like to ask uh, is, I'd like to see the paycheck stubs of our O's to tri-state O's, and we'll see how equal they are in, in that regard. I'm guessing that being in Idaho, ours aren't a whole lot less than, than they are across the river or up in Pullman or wherever, you know, maybe be more for that matter. So if we're going to play that card, let's play that card. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've been kind of going at this for a while, and what I'd be interested in is to hear your, your elevator pitch, right? How would forming a union, you know, short, we've gone into the details of it, how would forming a union be beneficial to nurses, and how would it be beneficial to patients in just like a short pitch? It's all about retention and recruitment. It's about building a staff that is experienced, capable, educated, and can provide the best quality care at bedside that the that the every every patient in this community deserves. If you don't have the tools to keep your nurses in the building, you're going to have a constant state of turnover. You're going to have people that uh, constantly come and go. And if you, if the union and gaining a contract, the goal for me was always to improve, was to get good nurses to the hospital and keep the good nurses that we have. And currently that is not happening. Um, we are getting more and more exits from the hospital of good quality experienced staff day after day. 
Um, the experience pool at the hospital is getting um, younger and younger. Uh, we used to have the, you know, the you should always have you should always have a healthy mix of experience level and a nursing staff. And uh, a good model is usually, a, you know, a, um, about you know thirty three percent five and under. Uh, 33% in the 5 to 15 range and 33% 15 or higher. I mean, that's a really good model because you have the you have the old experienced nurses that can br- take the young nurses under their wing and show them the things that they've been, you know, that have, that they've learned over the course of a 15 to 20 year career. Um, we have a very um, our staff at the hospital has gotten to the point where, you know, a very very large majority of the nurses at the hospital have 5 years or less experience. So um, you know, if we can, if we can improve the working conditions, if we can get a contract that has um, uh, pay and benefits that are fair, uh, not exceptional by any means, but at fair market value in comparison to other hospitals of the same size, to where that we can get those nurses to come here and work and keep the nurses that we have, that translates to the best quality bedside care that you can provide to the patients of the community. That was great. Yeah, 100%. Oh. Oh. Um, man, Drew, do you have any... I mean, I'm not trying to end this conversation. I'm just like, let's keep it rolling. And then I would like to add to that just a little bit. <clears throat> when we started changing hands, a lot of the the emergency department, and I don't know how OR... Well, I've never worked in OR, but I don't know how it used to be in OR, but the emergency department, there's always a joke that the only way you're going to be able to transfer into that department from another area or get hired in there is either if somebody dies or retires because it was a very experienced staff. Um, they had all been at the hospital for a really long time. They were, you know, um, well-educated. There were people that taught, you know, the ACLS and PALS classes and, you know, it was a very highly experienced group of people that worked in the emergency department. When we started changing hands... And the senior staff members saw the writing on the wall. In a 18-month period, we lost 23 nurses out of the emergency department. Wow. Because they didn't like the direction that the, that the hospital was heading. They didn't agree with uh, policy changes that you know the new corporations were putting into place. A lot of people said, well, I can see the writing on the wall here. I'm getting out. And in that short period, we went from a very highly experienced well-trained emergency department staff to a very heavy um, amount of nurses with very, you know, with short nursing careers. Yeah, that would directly translate to patient care. Exactly, it does. And I'm not, and I want to be clear that the new nurses that we have at the hospital are fantastic. They're doing a great job. But they're, you know, to some degree, there's no... Um, there's no substitute for experience. There's no substitute for the leadership and staff that can bring those young ones into play and teach them the things that they know. And there is no substitute for experience. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And and on that sort of end, um, what is it about St. Joe's or maybe even the Valley that keeps um, the hospital from recruiting or retaining a CEO that will stay? Because it seems like there's high turnover there all the time. I don't 
honestly know that I can answer why they don't stay. Uh, Howard Hayes was our CEO from 1983 until approximately 2009 or 10, maybe 11, somewhere in there. It's a long run. Yeah, it was a long run. And then we actually uh, had a gentleman come in by the name of Tim Saylor, a super nice guy. And Tim came in when we were still uh, not being pushed so hard by Ascension Health from St. Louis. But once we started getting pushback from them, he saw the writing on the wall and left. Uh, we then went into basically an interim role uh, and bless his heart, Dr. Rooney uh, had did the interim the longest, but we stayed in an interim role for several years actually until we had uh, Blaine Claypool most recently. Uh, he was uh, brought in by RCCH to St. Joseph's and Really, I don't know the reason that Blaine left. Uh, I think there were some family issues and things and uh, thoughts and prayers to him and his family. But um, anyway, now we have uh, Tim Trottier as our CEO, and and we'll see how that works out. Well, I got to uh, I got to think from an outside perspective that uh, having a CEO come and go all of the time is really going to affect the culture of the hospital and in, in, in whole as a whole and. Um, I feel like that's got a way on people too. Well, it does. The direction changes every time. Um, you know, I remember our meeting when Blaine came to us and he was telling us that by the end of the calendar year 2017, we would have at least two freestanding emergency rooms in the valley. Uh, by the end of 2018, we'd have the third one. We still don't have any of those three. Uh, he talked about the programs that were going to be implemented and put into place, and people have hopes for that. Um, thus far, I, I don't think that we have any of, of those things on the table uh, from Tim that's currently with us. But the direction changes, so the uncertainty changes. And for example, uh, I told you that we didn't have the COO position at the hospital until actually just in about the past two years that that's even existed at St. Joseph's. And we're already on our second one with an interim in between. And what's interesting is when this current one that we have, his name's Taylor, he's a very nice guy. Uh, when he was, when it was announced that he was coming to us, they actually announced we're getting a new COO and he'll probably be with us for two to three years before he moves on. So what's interesting to me is we had a meeting and, uh, we asked him, Hey, are you the guy that's only going to be here two to three years? And he explained that LifePoint has, uh, roughly 90 hospitals and about 40 to 45 of them, uh, run a COO position and the others don't. He had said that they typically groom their CEOs as a COO first, and then they move them on to another place. So that tells me we're training grounds for administration, basically. And so my concern is, I don't know how much of the direction of the hospital comes from the COO role, but my concern is, you know, just when we get trust in a guy or start to like a guy or get the direction of a certain person, um, suddenly that changes and it affects the morale. It affects a lot of things. So, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about because it's something that a small community really depends on, um, that hospital. And if things are constantly in flux and changing, um, how, how can we expect to get quality patient care if everybody's kind of not on the same page um it sounded like before like you guys were talking about um it was it was a lot more sort of close-knit and family-oriented in terms of staff and um there was just a culture of connectedness and everybody was kind of working to strive for the same goals and now it's kind of all over the map 
Well, I'm speaking for my area. I can't speak to the other areas of the hospital. Uh, currently in uh, the department I work in, the post-anesthesia care unit, we're like a sister to the operating room and to the outpatient services. We still operate as a family. Uh, we have the best director in the entire hospital with Angie Thomas, but it really does feel like there's a divorce between administration and us as workers. Um, so, yeah, and to build on that point uh, about being a training ground, and to kind of touch on what the Joes have been talking about is. We want these nurses who have had shorter careers who are doing a great job serving the community to become the nurses that have long tenured careers like Grandma Pat. And we want them to be able to be happy in their in place of employment. And we feel that um, by gaining these securities, we will be more tight-knit because as a group, we'll have more of a voice. So if you're able to go ahead and get these securities in place through your negotiations, are, is, the host, is the hospital or is the life point, I guess, at that point, worried about other departments following suit and doing the same thing and starting their own unions? Is that part of the threat there? Well, I, I think that probably is part of the threat, uh, but that's a dual-edged sword. So the more entities that are organized, the more power we have, right? And so to argue on behalf of the company, they may say, let's stop this uh, bargaining unit with registered nurses from getting a contract. We really want to make a stand here. We don't want any other entities to organize. But on our side, uh, there may or may not be some organizing going on right now. And, you know, the more we have organized, the more power we have. Right. And so I think ultimately they do want to stop it um, and they want to take the stand and show us that. Uh, they're not going to give, and it's very evident thus far in bargaining. Very. So that's kind of leads me into the next thing I was wondering about is you said at the beginning you've been kind of in negotiations since last September, really. I mean, it might have gotten rolling a little before then. But is it typical for negotiations to last this long? And then, like, what's it like in there? So... <clears throat> What I read and then what, what our business agent, Larry Crutch, says is a typical first contract will take a year to 18 months. So we're not outside the realm there. But he will also tell you that at a year into bargaining or negotiations, typically you've got most things buttoned down and you're just ironing out the last few things. You know, you're really at the meat and potatoes of things, which is typically the monetary side of things. Uh, thus far in negotiations, we don't have a single tentative agreement other than what they call boilerplate language which is basic stuff it's like the glossary of a book or something and then uh, some definitions um, everything that they still have on the table is either a concession or what we call status quo which is what we currently have and uh, between concessions and status quo i would say that they're what what do you think joe 60 percent they want us to concede on pretty much yeah and I mean, so I guess, you know, the it's not abnormal for negotiations to be going on this long. But w what is abnormal is that we've made no real progress in the amount of time that we have had. I mean, gotcha. it's it's just been a it's it's been a brick wall. 
So, despite that, do you feel that the momentum is still going forward? Is everybody still really motivated? Um, is, is everybody kind of gaining steam at this point? I think at this point in time, um, the nurses at St. Joe's are as far as. Um, supporting the union and being dissatisfied with how the working conditions are it's never been hotter than it currently is right now um the, yeah the yard signs are everywhere yeah they Down are at our house. <laughs> it's uh um every day it's uh we come into work and we face a new challenge it seems like um the everybody is not only upset with the changes that have impacted patient care but they're extremely upset with how administration has chosen and I want to I want to stress that they've chosen to take this approach with negotiations so we attempted to address the issues at the hospital prior to organizing that didn't work we started organizing rather than starting to address the issues that we had which would have been if they really wanted to stop the union, they could have just started listening and acting on the on the concerns that we had. Rather than sitting down and talking about it, they really took the uh, stance of um, we we're kind of a bunch of unruly five year olds and needed to be taken care of rather than you know listened to. And they brought in a union buster to the hospital, um, tried to um, educate people with actually what. I found to be was a lot of, you know, um, one-sided or sometimes false information about unions. Um, they tried to, rather than sit down and talk with us through the process, they, they just fought us the whole way. And now that we passed this, you know, chose to go union with the vote that we had with such an, uh, what I want to say is, um, by an enormous landslide, especially for a right-to-work state, especially with a bargaining unit this size, um, the, us winning the vote by that much was a huge accomplishment. Um, so now that we're in negotiations, rather than actually sitting down and, and productively trying to iron out some details to where that we can start working together, it has just been an adversarial process, which was initiated by the company from the get-go mm -hmm. and continues to this day. So I'm surprised, given the history and track record, that they haven't had this come up before, um, that they haven't had people in these smaller communities rise up against them and say, hey, this is enough, we're done. Well, it, it currently is right now. Actually, uh, another LifePoint hospital in McMinnville, Oregon, um, just voted uh, in, in December of 2019 to to have a union and the Oregon State Nurses Association is representing them and they too we've been in contact with uh, their union negotiator and they too are facing the same struggles we are uh, the corporate attorney that represents uh, LifePoint for us here in Luston is also doing their contract and seems to be the same tactics uh, involved in both places what's interesting is uh, again on Google you can find a lot of things um, their hospital in McMinnville had one safety rating by an agency that was an A rating uh, when LifePoint acquired them. And I think it was within eight or nine months had went to a D rating. And the reason that those folks down there organized was essentially a mirror of why we did. And it was a lot of safety concerns, cutbacks, um, you know, and it led them down that path. And you would think that these guys would just wise up to it a little bit and, and uh, 
it, it was really interesting to me to learn about McMinnville and them voting to go union because if you, you know, do a little bit of research and look into it, it was just like a perfect mirror image of the exact road that we went down. It's just like you picked us up and set us in McMinnville, Oregon, and it was on repeat. I mean, it was like Groundhog Day when you really, like, look through with the, the situation and what went on. Um, and I think really that um, with the – as you see more community-owned hospitals or, um, or, or hospitals that are owned by you know, smaller corporations as they get bought out by larger corporations and you see more not-for-profit hospitals change to for-profit hospitals, I think that this unionization of the workforce is going to be something that you're going to see more and more often. I think it's going to be a trend that picks up because it's, it's the only way – that we can really, like we've said before, get a seat at the table and address the concerns because really um, there are concerns and the quality patient care that we are concerned about, I honestly don't feel is it's not shared by administration. You know, they're there to boost profits. They're there to suck the money out of the out of out of the building, out of the community as much as they possibly can. They're there to invest, to line the investors' pockets. And I think that's, you know, their main priority. Well, healthcare is the fastest growing uh, industry that's forming unions right now. And uh, so it's, it's very evident taking care of people, you know, it's not a piece yeah. of machinery or whatever. So, well, yeah. and I, I would guess that, um, these productivity measures that they're putting in place for you guys and other hospitals that they manage um, are getting really pushed um, even more during the age of COVID. So I'm sure that you're seeing that kind of break down even further during this time. Is that the feeling or do you, do you notice that? Well, I think COVID has created a ton of struggles uh, for healthcare, especially healthcare. So it has... Fine. It has, you know, nationally in every entity probably, but make no mistake about it, there's also a lot of federal stimulus money out there. Uh, CDC's website, you can look up any hospital in the nation and see how much they made. And I think our hospital was, I don't know, 4.1 or $4.8 million or something that received in federal stimulus money. I don't know if they've actually had it right now or not, but that's what's advertised on the CDC's website. Um, our hospital has did a fairly decent job initially in the beginning with covid they did everything they could uh to try to get people their hours um what's interesting is you saw in the news media that hospitals were going to be overrun with sick patients but what you didn't see is the um elective service side of things that was being shut down so never in my life did i think i'd face a layoff in healthcare. i mean that doesn't exist right and suddenly uh since i'm attached to the operating room we had people that were on unemployment and uh, essentially taking layoffs. And uh, I don't know, it's been, it's been a struggle, no doubt about it. I think to piggyback on that, Joe, it's just interesting uh, when you talk to fellow coworkers who used to be employees at St. Joe's that are at new hospitals that do the same job they did at St. Joe's, for instance, the response in COVID with those unions and at those entities was to keep them working. And even if they were low census, because lack of elective procedures, they were low census with pay and the understanding that you would come in. I mean, I have a I have a former coworker that works in Spokane that 
um, is very reliable, that it works for Providence. And they were low census with pay. And they have a union at Sacred Heart. And our, uh, our mantra when we f- uh, were forced to go into unemployment was, or when we were forced to miss hours, is to go file for state and federal unemployment benefits, which um, leaves a sour taste in your mouth when you know that there's other employers out there that want to retain their nurses past this pandemic because they know that they will need them. And we were treated differently, and that that's a hard thing to swallow. When you talk about essential workers, right, um, during a pandemic, it seems like there's no more essential worker than people in healthcare. Um, you know, it, it seems crazy to turn you guys home and and uh, keep you away from the hospital, serving serving the community, serving people here that that need the help. How can we, as community members, as listeners to this podcast, as non healthcare St. Joe's employees, support you guys in your endeavors to get your union going? At me, I don't know if there's anything we could do for to help you with negotiations or I, what can we do about it? Well, I think there's a couple of things you can do about it. Um, you know, we're planning some community events here coming up. Or the first one will be a picket actually on November 14th, where we uh, march outside the hospital's property. And of course, having the community there uh, puts pressure on the employer and lets them know that the community supports us and, and won't stand for it. Uh, if you can't, you know, stand outside uh, and, and do the picket, then Maybe you drive by and you go around the block a couple of times and you continually honk your horn to show some support for us. Um, Of course, a letter to administration, uh, you know, to either the corporate level or to uh, our administration at the hospital, uh, urging them to uh, bargain in true good faith uh, with the nurses and and come to some resolution on a contract would would be a way that you could help out. you know, like and share things that you see on Facebook, listen to the podcast. Uh, you know, soon there'll be a website coming down the pike. We'll, we'll have a, come get some yard signs. Yeah, come get oh some yeah. Yard Where signs. do we get yard signs? Where do we get t-shirts? Um, for people in the community that want, uh, um, yard signs or t-shirts, you, you can go to, you can go on Facebook. Um, there's a page called community for patients over profits. You can leave a message on there. Um, and, and they can get you a yard sign. Um, uh, we do have some shirts left. We're a little bit limited on sizes. Um, um, I think we're. I think we're at, currently all, all that they had left. I think was larges and extra larges. Um, but, Works uh, for me. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, uh, follow the page. Um, comment. Um, yeah, uh, listen to this podcast and share it with everybody. And also, I mean, if you have a, a passionate opinion and you want to support the nurses, write letters to the editor uh, in, in, a, in addition uh, at the Tribune and, and any other uh, media outlet that you feel would get the point to as many people in the Quad Cities that, that seek care at this regional medical center and all the little communities out there that also uh, get moved in for care at the medical center. Um, share it as much as you can and, and please do show support on the 14th of November. 
by showing up. And if you don't have a sign, we've got one for you. You know, the other thing I might make mention of is for those of you that are going to see your primary care physician or even your surgeon or whatever it may be, talk to them about it. You know, ask them uh, if they support us and, and tell them to support us. Uh, you know, ultimately, um, everything that trickles from the nurses at St. Joe's trickles to the community. And we're all in this together. So those are some ways you can support us. The picket is on November 14th, and the time will be 11 o'clock until 1 o'clock. All right. Well, um, maybe we should do two shifts. Two shifts. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess if there's anything that we forgot, let us know. You know, we can make some posts on our Facebook. If there's anything else you want to add, go for it. Uh, that Facebook page was Community for Patients Over Profits. So go check it out. Find yeah. some more information there. Make sure to uh, be there on the 14th as well. Yeah. Thank awesome. you, uh, Joe and Joe and Greg. Yeah. Thank again, you, guys. Guys, uh, thanks thanks for having us on and for getting this narrative out. Um, and thanks to everybody that's listening and uh, the support that, that you're giving the nurses at St. Joe's. Also, I'd like to say if anybody has any questions out there and they want to put them on the Facebook page or whatever, we'd be happy to answer those for you. Uh, if you've got questions about anything um, related to this, we're always happy to answer. So. This episode of the show is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to all of you for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, head over to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. That's going to do it for this week, but the shows are not over. Get caught up on the backlog of episodes if you haven't already, and thanks for listening.